I'd like to acknowledge that this broadcast is coming to you from Redfern, which is on unceded Gadigal land. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Just a heads up for listeners, this episode does contain discussions of gender dysphoria and trans identity. If that does bring anything to the surface for you, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Good afternoon, Mia Hull here on the podcast, streaming online and live on your radio from 12 to 1pm. This show is Out of the Box. Every Thursday I sit down with one guest and dive into the music they love and the life they've led and how those two interact. Today I'm joined by Kaya Wilson. Kaya is a writer, tsunami scientist and trans activist. He's just published a memoir and this show will be a bit of a teaser into some of the things you'll find in the memoir. We've got a lot to get through so we're going to dive right into the stories from Kaya's life. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. So would I be right in saying that swimming has been a big part of your life? Yeah, that's a nice thing to pick up on. It's yeah. been a huge part of my life. Yeah, I mean, from from really little. Uh, there's a chapter in the book, um, which is a, it's called Breath, and it's about lots of different things, but I sort of framed it around my experience of swimming. And, you know, swimming in general, I was a very competitive swimmer at high school, um, but also swimming in the ocean has always been a place I come back to. It's a very sort of, like, homely comforting experience for me um so yeah like it's definitely a thread throughout my whole life and the book and the ocean is obviously a thread as well yeah when did you start swimming uh look I learned to swim in a kind of grungy neighborhood swimming pool in England with my neighbor and my dad and we go on Saturday mornings early I think my mum like now looking back is my mum's time to sleep in and relax you know and not have us there (laughs) Uh, and, you know, it was very much just like a little pool. And I remember getting like the badges when you made your distance or, or something. But then we, at five years old, we then moved to Aruba in the Caribbean, which was a much more like, liberating experience. And that was when we, I started swimming in the ocean. And it's that kind of warm, seamless ocean where you just kind of run between the air and the sea and it's no big deal and it's just delicious. Um, so I, you know, that's where we really, I guess, fell in love with the ocean, you know, and it was this tiny island in the Caribbean. You can see all the way to Venezuela. You can go around the island in a day. Uh, and it was just a beautiful time. So you've swum in that delicious ocean, but you've swum in a lot of other places growing up as well, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So there's that sort of sensual experience I had from swimming in the ocean, but then there's also that competitive side that I definitely had, especially when I was younger. And one of the things I talk about is I did a, a channel swim relay. So I was at boarding school in the UK for the last years of high school. And looking back, you know, I kind of had something to prove. And I joined this channel swim relay team and we trained for it and we went to go swim for a few practices probably not enough and probably not enough for me to recognize that I probably wasn't cut out for it. You know, I was like, I think borderline underweight at I, the time. I feel like I'm not understanding the gravity of this. How how big is the channel? What are you talking about? The channel's, about? I, I think it's like famously 26 miles or something, which is what, 50 kilometers. Yeah, like so it's a relay. So you do an yeah. hour each, right? So you there's all these rules because it's very much a it's a thing on its own. It's a convention, right? And there's there's people who have swum it a bunch of times. There's lots of famous people, and we met a couple of them, and they just didn't have the body type that I had. <laughs> and what do you mean by that? Meaning I was skinny and couldn't handle the cold, but I was so determined and so kind of competitive about it that I just did it. Just like gritted my teeth, and. Yeah, so it was a relay. So there's all these rules where you can't touch the boat. So you have to, like, hand over. I think you sort of high-fived in the water, and then you can get out. So there's someone in the water not touching the boat at all times. 
and I did my leg and I just remember like running through these things in my brain trying to keep going and keep going and I was in the um the shipping channel right so there's a little support boat that's with you and I would just like breathe and you could see these giant container ships just like cruising along next to you um so it was a peculiar experience but I got severely hypothermic and passed out like the moment I got on the boat oh my goodness it was like a terrible terrible thing um and I had, it took me months to recover I guess I reflect on that and in the book talking about how I just didn't think I could push myself that far mm. like you can push yourself to sort of near near death you know yeah. um I just didn't believe I had this sort of concept that all you had to do to get further was to just push yourself. And I did, to the point of collapse, you know, and it was quite dangerous, really. Let's move over to warmer waters. Yeah. You you lived in a bunch of different countries growing up. Yeah. Swam in a bunch of different pools. Yeah. Why were you moving around so much? Yeah, so my parents were teachers, just regular teachers. And then when they sort of got to about 40, they decided they wanted to travel and they joined... Um, this community of international schools around the world. So back, this was before the internet, and you, apparently you just go to a conference and every, like there's a sort of network of international schools exist everywhere and they go to this conference and they'd all have a desk. And the way my parents tell it is that they'd got their little, you know, resumes, SCVs in their hand, printed out, and the desks were arranged in alphabetical order. And my father was an English teacher and my mum was an art teacher. So they needed that combination of jobs. And they went to the first, no, Aruba begins with A, and that was the first desk they got to. And they were offered a jobs and they were so panicked they just signed on the spot <laughs> and took the jobs. And just so, relocated the family. Yeah, and they didn't know where Aruba was. And they, they like went to, my dad said he like rushed home and went to the encyclopedia and just like looked it up and it was this tiny desert island in the Caribbean. Did he just move you or did you have siblings that all moved as well? Yeah, no. Um, well, I've got two older siblings who were sort of independent at that point and yeah. then I've got uh, siblings closer to myself in age who, yeah, came with us. And with subsequent moves from Aruba, was it the same thing that influenced that move, just found the table and went there or were there other things? Yeah. Informing those choices. <laughs> they got a little more savvy. When they went to these conferences, we would go and stay with family, friends or whatever. And they'd be gone for two weeks and they'd come back and then we'd have a family meeting. And it would be, so we're going to move. We could be going to one of these five places and it would be Sri Lanka, Togo, um, Geneva, like, it, like there'd be like these five places scattered around the world and then be like, so we don't really know yet. And be like, okay. <laughs> and then a few months later, they'd be offered a job and, and then it'd be like, they'd be decided where we're going and that would be that. Tell me about your mum and dad. We'll start off with your mum. Uh-huh. What kind of woman was she? She's, um, there's a lot of her in the book and she's many things. She can be extremely fun. You know, she was always the first person to be singing and dancing uh, in whatever situation we were in. Uh, but she's also, you know, got this history where you know, she came from a very English working class background. Her mother um, was born with severe scoliosis and so she had this disability that w- that she found very difficult to live with because she wasn't treated particularly well for having it. And so she had this quite hard upbringing, you know, and then she was actually a teen mum with my eldest brother and that came with its own set of challenges. But she, you know, really made a life for herself and for her kids and she became a teacher and travelled the world and that's what she wanted to do and she's done it, you know. Um, but she's definitely a character in the book that um, kind of recurs and it is both this very fun person but also someone who's struggled with my queerness and didn't quite know how to handle it and saw it as something that might hold me back in life. And I think that was her fear, really. Where along the way did she meet your dad? They met at a teacher's conference and she had already, she was divorced from her first husband and she had two kids. And so she was a bit like, didn't want any time wasters. You know, like I'm, I'm an adult, I've got two kids, I don't have much time. 
and they went out for a drink and my mum doesn't really drink very much, but my dad likes a beer or two. And my dad didn't want a woman who was going to be, who wasn't independent, right? But she was like the picture of independence. So, and he said he'd like check the clock and he's like, if she doesn't offer, he bought the first round, said if she doesn't offer me a drink by 8.30 or whatever, then this is over. Apparently at like 8.29, she goes, oh, uh, would you like another drink? Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, they, um, they build a life together. Where was your dad from? He's a white English South African, which are sort of distinctions that have cultural significance in South Africa. He grew up in apartheid South Africa. He also had a pretty tough home life. Um, His father was very violent, alcoholic. There are many siblings. There are seven in the total. And... They, I don't know, he just sort of did his best. He was this sensitive kid um, who, you know, he was the only only boy in South Africa who refused to play rugby. That was, like, one of the things, one of the sort of myths that I was told. And apparently they used to, so they forced him to go to the matches and he would turn in protest and turn his back to the rugby match. And that was, I think, his kind of statement against that sort of very macho culture. You were saying before that, you finished high school at a boarding school in England. Yeah. While you were there, you received some pretty shocking news about your dad's health, didn't you? Yeah. So while I was at school, that was when he was first diagnosed with kidney cancer. Um, and cancer is something that comes and goes and is bad and good. And so that, I think I was about, yeah, I was 16 when he had his kidney removed I think that was the beginning of our kind of relationship with cancer. And, you know, for a while, okay, he had his kidney removed. He was this miraculous thing. And so you'd have then regular checkups, see if it would come back. And it came back in his pancreas and his spleen sort of, you know what? I'm like just not great with dates. That's okay. That's okay because I was actually um, going to talk about this after the song okay. that we're about to go into. Yeah, and we'll come yeah. back in and talk about your dad's journey with cancer. Sure. What's the first song you'd like to play today? So, you know, I spent a whole afternoon <laughs> like trying to shortlist this. So now we're down to five. And the first one, actually, it's a Welsh lullaby. And I first heard it in the movie Empire of the Sun, which is a sort of 80s, 90s classic. It's about a little boy in Hong Kong, I think they're in. It's been years since I've seen it, but they're in Hong Kong and the war hits and this very privileged, apparently secure life just sort of disintegrates and he ends up in a prisoner of war camp. And this is a song that he sings when he watches the kamikaze pilots go off to do their thing. And it's just, it's a, it's a lullaby. It's a song about safety. And I chose it because there's something about that movie and there's something about that song that really captures this separation from family. And, you know, moving around. And I mean, there was just always times of separation, boarding school, this. And it's just a painful, sad thing. And there's something about the song that's comforting but also captures that feeling. And... Um, I don't know all everything there is to know about this song, but it's beautiful. On FBI Radio 94.5, it's Seogun, a Welsh lullaby from the movie Empire of the Sun. Listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming on the website, that was Co Gun. It was a Welsh lullaby played from the Empire of the Sun soundtrack. It was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Kaya Wilson, who has just released his memoir and is here to talk all about the stories that are in it. Kaya, where were you in life when you started to experience gender dysphoria? Yeah, it's hard to really pinpoint that sort of thing. 
it's a different experience when you really fully realised your identity and then you look back and you go, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. I did a reading last night of my book. Um, it's called As Beautiful As Any Other. And I read a bit about how when I was five years old, I, like, desperately wanted short hair. And my mum did not want me to have short hair. <laughs> and so we kind of cut this deal where she would let me cut my hair short if I got my ears pierced and we did it and I just like oh, just resented it so hard and I just like <laughs> willed my ears and it just got like so infected and it was this huge disaster and they closed up anyway. The point is I just really wanted to have that masculine expression and that was I can pinpoint that for a very early age whether I didn't I didn't identify that as a gender thing necessarily at the time but I do remember just these little feelings, you know, like going to dress up parties and I would always choose something masculine. So I remember like going as a pirate and my friend being like, gosh, you look like a boy and feeling good. I guess, you know, I was always myself. And when that self collided with expectations of gender, I felt bad. And I think that's what dysphoria was for me. I think it showed its face in different ways like for example in sport if I couldn't play with the boys or if something was denied me for my gender there was this kind of feeling of of wrongness but also injustice and you know something you can also attribute to feminism or the way girls are treated so like they were definitely intertwined but in terms of pinpointing, that's just not something I can really do. You just mentioned feminism. You talk about that in your book as well as, you know, having experienced it from from both sides almost. Can you explain to me what, yeah. what that feels like? Yeah, that chapter is called Rage, which was really like satisfying to name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah and I describe, it's sort of framed around the experience of walking home late at night being perceived as a woman versus walking home late at night being perceived as a man. And I think as a woman, you really develop these survival tactics that um, just become second nature. And there's a certain type of fear that you just kind of have to live with and that, you know, your body does to keep you alert and, you know, ready to react. But then there was this night when I was just, I was on tea, my hair was short, I, my shoulders had filled out, my voice was deeper. And I just remember walking home. I'd had kind of a shit night as well. <laughs> and I was like, oh, a bit over it. I was walking home and I had a bit of a strut on. And this like pack of men just kind of came around the corner. And I just felt my body kind of freeze a bit, get a bit that kind of adrenaline, fear adrenaline going. And they just said, hey, mate, how's your night? And they were just friendly and there was just such a different kind of um, vibe I got from them and I just was so angry yeah. that it was that easy, you know. And I think, what's the line? I said the difference between, um, you know, feeling befriended or hunted and it just really shifted my perspective. Also, there's this thing when you're a woman that people don't really believe you a lot of the time, right? Mm. And people... They, they undermine your experience. So if you sort of say, oh, I was walking home, a bunch of guys were there, I felt scared. They might be like, ah, oh, scared of what? You know, like, did anything happen? Not really, but eh, something could have easily happened. You just, you know. And there was, when I had that experience walking home late at night as a guy, it just confirmed everything that I knew and that maybe doubted because people doubted me. Yeah. It's that, interesting that you were doubting that yourself as well. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So it was like tangible evidence that men I do know. treat men differently. Yeah. And I mean, I frame it around that one kind of situation, but that's that's, that's every situation. Yeah, and now as someone who identifies as male, are you mm. welcome in feminist discussions? Yeah, look, you know, that was something I was scared of losing. Something that was really important to me. Um I mean, I was scared of losing friends. You know, I there was definitely a moment, you know, a sort of time where that was a real worry. I go into these kind of queer spaces, and people who would have previously either flirted with me or smiled at me, or whatever, now kind of gave me a bit of a shoulder. Mm. 
And that turning point was like not very fun, but I didn't lose any friends. <laughs> my friends don't care. It's not a thing. Like it in the end, my um, my community, which is very much the queer community, it wasn't an issue. And I'm kind of out in most areas of my life. Um, most of my friends are women or femme or queer or uh, of some kind of vaguely marginalized community. So it, it's just like it hasn't been a thing in the end. Let's know. talk about the process of transitioning. Mm-hmm. How did you arrive at that decision? Well, the decision to sort of live socially as a masculine person happened slowly over time. Mm. Uh, the decision to like medically transition, which not everyone does. I mean, it's something that I felt was right for me. It was something I you know read about extensively. I did a lot of research into. And it's something I was really um, had put on the shelf, and just it was sort of sitting there in the sense that I got all the permissions I needed to get, which you have to do in this country. It's improved slightly recently, but you know I had it lined up, and then I had this horrific surfing accident. Um, where I was just surfing, having a great time, and then I went headfirst into a sandbank, broke my neck, dislocated dislocated and fractured um, a vertebrae in my neck, and was rushed to hospital and had this kind of terrible week <laughs> in the hospital where they said that I was probably going to be a quadriplegic at the worst, um, at the very least, definitely have some nerve damage. Um, and I didn't. But in that time when everything was so uncertain, I just had this clarity about how I wanted to live my life and I wanted to transition. There were time, time will not always be there. So first of all, why lie to yourself? And then why wait? Um, you're only delaying. I was yeah. only delaying. I realized for me that it was a it was a postponement. Yeah. yeah, it was like the natural progression. Yeah. And we were talking before about your dad and his cancer diagnosis. At this point in your life, where was he at in his battle with cancer? Yeah. So when I started to medically transition, my dad had about six months left. But I'd also come to the point that I couldn't wait, and that was an impossibility. Um, so I came out to him as he was dying and, you know, on a lot of drugs and in a fairly diminished state. But that was my life and that was his life and that's just how things were. Did that impact the way that you came out? Um, I did by email. It yeah. sounds very like... <laughs> because they were in the UK. They were in they? the UK. I was here. I didn't want to see their reaction and I wanted their reaction to be private to them um, for their sake and mine. And also in an email, I'm a writer, right? You know, like in an email, you can say many things and they have to read it in one go. So you can't interrupt each other. Um, So that was what I did. And they took a while to reply, which was a really awful time. It was about three or four days. And then in the end, my parents replied uh, separately. And it was really a moment in our relationship and in our lives because he responded by, with his own coming out. And he disclosed to me that, in his words, that he had lived as a gay man for most of his life, from sort of 16 to mid-30s, and uh, had actually considered transitioning himself in the 60s, which was complete news to me. I had no idea. And he was never... And looking back, it also makes a bit of sense, you know, some of the things that he... Um, was into culturally or the way he was and some of his relationships as well so like that that was huge but it also broke open this kind of period of honesty for the last six months of his life that really shifted how we spoke about things as a family that was really invaluable my mum did know and that was something that they shared between them they had a genuine partnership and I don't doubt that for a second but but I didn't know when I called my uncle up, who is openly gay, to talk to him about this, he was like, oh, I'm so happy that your father is sharing this now. But he also told me about all these other queer family members that had been so secreted. And that was an incredible thing to know I had this like queer lineage and this history 
and they came from somewhere where I was a part of it, you know? I wasn't this anomaly. But also, they all lived these lonely lives. Like, it was a lonely experience for these people because no one spoke about it. So you came out to your parents via email in a very mm-hmm. controlled way. You got to write out everything without being interrupted, but that wasn't the way that you came out to a lot of your family. It wasn't really a controlled situation for you, was it? Right, oh, yeah. Because of my dad's health and he was dying and I started flying to and fro back to England. When he did die, his funeral was the first time my extended family had been in one place. And my mother had a lot on her plate, obviously. She'd been caring for him for quite a long time at this point. And she was also struggling with my identity and she hadn't told anyone. And so I was flying into this funeral. No one knew that I was transitioning. I contacted a few people who I sort of knew would be allies and asked them, can you just please just tell people? But that didn't exactly permeate because funerals are an open invitation. You don't know who's coming. There's no RSVP system. My dad had just died. And I sort of rock up and, and there were people I've known my whole life who didn't know who I was. And that was an incredibly discomforting experience. So I ended up having to just come out again and again that day. And it was the most kind of horrific exposure therapy. Oh, it's but, really <laughs> such a traumatic day for you. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, that's just how it happened. It's I'm not what so I chose. sorry that happened. I mean, in a way, it's, you know, it's never going to be worse than that. You know, sometimes I go to an event, even still recently, I went to some friend's house who I'd known years ago, and there were people who I hadn't seen since pre-transition, and I thought, you know what, I'll never be as bad as my dad's funeral, so (laughs) (laughs) whatever, (laughs) yeah. Um, Let's play a song that you chose for your dad's funeral. Yeah. What was it? So it's classical music. It's um, an English composer called Vaughan Williams, and the piece is Lark Ascending, and it's just again, achingly beautiful. Ascending. It was Vaughan Williams on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. This show is Out of the Box and today I am joined by trans activist, writer and tsunami scientist Kaya Wilson. Kaya, before you were talking about a surfing accident you had which ended up breaking your neck, walk me through what happened that day. Well, I don't really walk people through the accident anymore because it's just not worth it to me. I think the important part is knowing that it was terrifying <laughs> and horrific and the recovery was the important part, I think. Well, let's talk um, about the recovery. Okay. Because in, in the immediate aftermath, you needed mm. surgery, didn't you? Yeah. So in the immediate aftermath, I was sort of rushed to hospital and um, they did an x-ray. They realised it was um, really bad. I guess, you know, one of the things I do talk about is that I was this kind of one sort of miracle patient in the sense that no one with this injury that they could find evidence of had um, survived without uh, nerve damage. So that in itself was a lot to handle, but there was a period of time where they thought I would be paralysed. And so that was the bit that really shook me at the time. It was like probably two days or so, and there were all these medical professionals around me who were just, I don't know if impressed is the word, but they were so... They were gathered by this horrific injury and I was the centre of it and they did this emergency surgery and I came out of it okay. So I was given this kind of, it felt like a second chance. What does rehabilitating from something like that look like? How long does that take and what do you have to do? So for the beginning part, it was very much just watching and waiting to see if um, the nerves would hold up. They... uh, fuse two vertebrae together to see if that will hold so I just had to like keep aware if I felt any tingling or if my sensation in the rest of my body changed and then I had an x-ray a week later and it seemed to be holding and that was okay they didn't have to do a second surgery which was a 
a concern. And then I wore a, a solid um, neck brace for at least eight weeks. And so it was about living with a solid neck brace for eight weeks and also living with the trauma of it and living with um, this complete dependence I had on other people and the living with the massive trauma to my body where I was, I was sleeping 20 hours a day. Like I was having two naps a day. I was sort of getting up to eat. Um, it was a, just very slow and difficult recovery. I couldn't um, brush my teeth at the beginning. And so one of the things I did really learn was this sort of setting your own pace, you know, and this very incremental progress and kind of congratulating yourself or rewarding yourself for very, very small steps. What are those small steps? Oh, they would be like um, brushing teeth without a cup. It would be not spilling food on myself. It would be walking to the corner. It, it was, at the time, monumental things, which now sound small. But it was treating myself kindly with respect to that sort of thing. And in a way, it was weirdly... I don't want to sound like I'm painting this as a positive thing because it was extremely difficult. But in a way, there was a kind of a freeing of this social comparison, which we do all the time automatically, and which things like social media and um, that kind of constant input of information does to our brains as well. That, you know, you go on social media, you see someone having a great holiday, a great job, whatever it is, that social comparison really did dissolve um, because I couldn't compare myself to my friends. Um, I just had to really learn to stay really internal with um, what I achieved and what I did in life. So like psychologically, I, I really learned a lot, but it was an extraordinarily difficult time. So yeah, you become more and more mobile, mm-hmm. you're walking to the corner, you're brushing your teeth without a cup. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the first time you entered the water again and what that felt like. Yeah, so I that was very important to me. I, I mean, if I think about my relationship to the ocean as a, a relationship of love, it was something I wanted to invest in. And it was sort of getting to summer when I was still in my neck brace and I would go to the beach or an ocean pool and I would just walk in. I go to the chill ones, right? No mm. waves. Okay. <laughs> and um, just kind of want to feel that sense of immersion And I started to just very, very slowly just do a little bit more each time and just put my face under. So I just kind of like let myself sink to see how my body would react. And for a long time, there was very much a a feeling of panic. But I just was gentle with it. And I got back to the place where I could just relax and I could open my eyes. The the cold was really hard for a while because all the muscles and everything in my neck were also torn. So any kind of shivering was like if I just think about it, like shivering it was just it was horrific <laughs> and that that was almost the worst part so I had to be really controlled in terms of how long I was in the water or what I did so I just kind of took it easy. Did you ever feel betrayed by the ocean this thing that had nurtured you for so long and then was the cause of this injury? Yeah, I think that would maybe like intellectually sound like a logical thing my a brain would do, but no, not at all. I didn't. That was not the feeling that came. Yeah, the, it was um, more of a, a passive kind of um, return to home. That's really beautiful. Mm. Did you ever go back to the beach where the accident happened? I did. Yeah, actually that that year we would we drove up um I used to always have vans so I had a van and we drove up the coast with my I drove up the coast with my partner and we were actually going to Tropical Fruits. Yeah. You know, the festival. And I it was just out of my neck brace. So I was really learning about I guess I learned through experiences real empathy with the people with disabilities and that you can have a visible disability and people will treat you a certain way and then it's invisible and people don't know or notice and um, it requires something else from you. 
But anyway, yeah, no, we were driving up the coast. We were going to Tropical Fruits. And my partner's very, like, supportive, you know. And she was like, we just do what you need to do. And I just drove off. I just took the turning and I ended up there. And, um, yeah, we just kind of sat there and watched the waves for a bit and watched people running in out of the water with their surfboards. And then we sort of parked up around the corner for the night. And I just just cried, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was a part of recovery. It was something that my brain needed to do. And I have since returned. I had to return for like work stuff, uh, which was different. Um, but I did have that kind of meet you again, you know, <laughs> uh, moment. What's the next song you'd like to play today? Okay, so we're going to play... Mellow Mood by Bob Marley. And I picked Bob Marley because it would just be weird for me not to pick Bob Marley. Um, Bob Marley is, of anyone, a truly global artist. You know, everywhere in the world is familiar with Bob Marley. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Bob Marley and Mellow Mood. Mellow Mood has got me Rock me Cause I've got to love, darling Love, sweet love, darling Quiet as the night That was Mellow Mood by Bob Marley on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia. I'm joined by Kaya Wilson. Kaya is a tsunami scientist, among many other things, and he's just released a memoir, which is out in all stores. <laughs> we'll talk about that soon. I want to get back to the tsunami part, though. Where were you in life when you started to pay attention to greenhouse gas emissions and carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere? So, yeah, there's a chapter in my book which I titled Education, and I... Um, I guess chronicle my science education from a young age growing up and then my growing awareness of global warming which we sort of all had you know and I you know intersperse it with the different carbon dioxide levels throughout the the chapter and I guess what I'm trying to express there is this kind of evolution we've had as a society into how we view climate change and how it was kind of a nerdy thing or a sort of environmental thing which was very much a sort of peripheral do-gooder kind of sentiment which is now kind of really encroaching in everybody's everyday life and you know down to the sort of the, the summer we had 2019-2020 with the bushfires which just I think really shook Australia shook the world I was subscribed to New York Times at the time and they their coverage was just as emotionally diminished <laughs> as ours was so I just tried to capture that I felt a bit of responsibility to talk about it because it's something I understand scientifically but also emotionally and as a part of a culture that we're in now so it um it felt necessary. I think a lot of artists and writers um, felt the need to express something around that time. And it's hard to forget about it, but we have also slightly sidelined it because of COVID, because we've gone to another disaster, which isn't completely unrelated to climate change, but has consumed us. And I just think we're at the point where we have this, we've got a bit of a reckoning and things are continuing down a fairly dark path. And Australia hasn't been particularly good about dealing with it for a country that's very... What do you mean? We're so great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you you understand the issue from a a scientific perspective. Tell me about that. Where did you begin your scientific journey? I guess I was always good at science at school, which is a bit of a cop-out answer. Um, But I wanted to base my career around something I loved. You know, I was very sort of idealistic millennial... Um, and I wanted to do marine science. I sort of kept going. I uh, came to Australia to do my undergraduate degree. I had dreams of Great Barrier Reef, you know. (laughs) That was, you know what, that's what brought me to Australia, and it's been 
love story ever since and I'm a citizen now. So yeah, I guess science brought me here, you know. And so I just kept going and it became a career. It became a career that took me all over the world and I was working in various different chapters. I, I worked for a very brief time in the oil and gas industry and that was very formative and they offered me money and a visa and everything and I didn't have the right to live in Australia and they offered me this adventurer's job where you helicopter in and out of ships and you travel around the world but I was selling my soul you know like it was <laughs> um, but you know I, I guess I got the advantages from that and I started on like probably the most money I've ever earned uh, and I just couldn't live with it and I moved on and I started working for government then, and then I went and I did a PhD in tsunami science. And it's a cool science that is both interesting and I believe in, and now I work in applied science that helps keep people safe from tsunamis and from different natural hazards. How do you do that? Uh, So basically you take historical tsunamis, you use them to validate like computer models then you can run models of hypothetical tsunamis to have an idea as to like where they're going to hit, how they behave, what's going to happen, how often they're going to happen, um, if we need to evacuate, where do we need to evacuate, that sort of thing. A hypothetical tsunami you have spoken about is one that might hit Sydney. Oh, you found that out of <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> Don't be scared. I mean... <laughs> The conclusion of that is to not be scared, really. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so, okay, I did a a fairly extensive study on Sydney Harbour. And we will probably experience a tsunami in our lifetimes that causes disruption to the harbour and the port and will probably be a bit destructive to, to boats and vessels. So as long as you're out of the water, you'll probably be okay. There might be some water that gets onto land but not very far sort of kind of worst case scenario will flood the manly corso type amount of flooding but like the important thing to remember is not the hollywood ginormous wave that kind of hits once yeah, destroys everything. sweeping wave of destruction just yeah. rolling through sydney just a kind of a sort of two-day unpredictable tides very powerful currents Okay. But you'll be all right. Okay. So that um, study on on Sydney is exclusively earthquake-generated tsunamis. Okay. Right? So I talk about Sydney's risk for tsunamis. And there's a map on there, so if you live in Marrickville, you can go and check it out and you'll be safe. If you live in Mountain Corso, maybe just have a look. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be slightly careful about what I say. Cause... Anyway, but it's evidence-based. It's published yeah. in, in, in a paper. <laughs> I talk about PPM in the book um, when I'm describing the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we measure the concentration of carbon dioxide in parts per million. And it just means for every million parts of air, say, I think now we're over 416 or something. It was yesterday or recently. So 416 parts per million were carbon dioxide. as measured at specific locations around the world. The most famous one is in Hawaii, uh, the Mauna Loa um, Observatory. The narrative that I learned is that we can't exceed 400. Over 400 is dangerous. And we're quite a bit over 400 now. Um, So everything's connected, right? And um, one of the examples I give is that with changes in temperature, established ocean currents may weaken. So, for example, the Gulf Stream that keeps UK and parts of Western Europe warm may weaken and then make that climate cooler. So what I try to get at in the book is that rising global temperatures aren't just a warmer planet. It's rising chaos. It's a change in climate. It's climate extremes. So when you talk about this in the book... And, you know, increasing PPM, does that weave into stories from your own life? Do they intertwine with personal anecdotes as well? Yeah, so that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to combine this scientific story with a human story, which is my story. Um, 
and my learning and my science. And I want to kind of carry the reader a bit um, because we very naturally understand the human story. It's something we can digest very easily. But I just kind of like spoon in a little bit of a little bit of science along the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also because scientific writing is traditionally so dry and that's how it is. And it's like that for a reason and that objectivity is a kind of ideal that science strives for. But we have feelings, I have feelings, and I wanted to, with the freedom of this book, incorporate the emotional story as well. And I think we don't, as scientists, necessarily talk about um, completely devastating existential threats like climate change with the emotional language that I think it deserves. And so I've chosen to do that in this book because I can. Yeah. I'm so fascinated by that. And yeah, I want to talk about the book more in a few minutes. But first, we're going to jump into a song. Okay. <laughs> you've, you've chosen Iris to play today. Tell me about that. Yeah. So you wanted the kind of songs that make you feel something that and I, I just went for Honest. And this was a real 14-year-old me angsty song. And when I was 14 and we were sort of awkwardly asking each other to slow dance or like this was one of the songs that we were playing and um, at that time I was living in Indonesia and we had this really wholesome group of friends and um, we would hang out and that's where we played at our parties you know and so there's this period of time and then it was in 1998 uh, when the revolution happened in Indonesia and my life was completely changed and all of our lives were very much changed we ended up um, as foreigners being evacuated and leaving the country. And it, it was never quite the same. We did return for a short period of time, but then we ended up leaving because a lot of the students from the international school had also left and my parents no longer had jobs there. Um, so it was like a real kind of break point in my life. And then after that, things were all a bit scattered. My family was all over the place. And this was the song that I played to remind myself of that time. So it also was this kind of angsty, grief-laden, but also teenage, slight heartbroken song. Um, so that's why I chose Goo Goo Dolls. It's Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls on FBI Radio 94.5. The Goo Goo Dolls and Iris on FBI Radio. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull. I'm joined by Kaya Wilson. Kaya is a tsunami scientist, trans activist, and author of a recently published memoir. You're actually in Sydney right now launching the memoir. How's it going? How's it been received by everyone? It's going really well. So far, so good. Um, it's been out for a couple of months now. It's called As Beautiful as Any Other. And it's been a really touching reception. You know, it's a very personal book and there's a risk there, you know, you put something personal out and it's a piece of art that people are going to judge. And that happens. Uh, but also, I was like, you know, there's, there's a self that you present to different people in your life and there's a self that you share with different friends. I think I was almost most nervous about friends reading it but that's actually turned out to be the best part because they write lovely things to you and they feel closer to you. And it, it's been um, a really a nice kind of um, experience in that way. And I did really prepare myself psychologically where I was like, you know, I've written this thing and I'm going to separate my psychological path from the judgment that comes with it. But in the end, it's actually been a, a source of connection and has been something that has helped my own self-acceptance, you know, which I thought was pretty good at the time. But now it's sort of, I feel much more relaxed about who I am and what I talk about. And yeah, it's been, it's been a really positive thing. Kaya, what does the future look like for you? 
Oh, the future's good. You know, I'm quite enjoying this year. <laughs> so like last year, I was finishing a PhD thesis, finishing a book. And because of COVID, I just, I took a job um, thinking I might not get another one. And so there was just a period of time where I was just extremely busy. And now I'm just enjoying weekends. I'm going to writers festivals. Um, I'm having a nice time. So I'm just gonna relax and I've got a little kind of I have a big calendar on my wall and I've got the goals I've got for this year and like one of the goals is like have a holiday which seems like a great thing to me well I'm I'm happy for you (laughs) you deserve it that's quite a huge 2020 thank you so much for joining me today on out of the box it's been really amazing having you thanks for having me it's been a real pleasure What song would you like to play to close out this interview? So we're going to finish on Chandelier by Sia, which also, I'm being honest, you know, like this song, it's just, for me, it's so completely integral to the experience of coming out as queer and finding queer community and being somewhere at 3am and being joyful. And it's just... I don't even really know where or when I first heard it. Um, But when I hear it now, it just makes me feel feelings. And it's just a part of, you know how sometimes like some music becomes a part of your body, you know, and it just like resonates when it plays. This is one of those songs. And I think a lot of us secretly love this song. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be a liar if I said this song doesn't sometimes give me goosebumps. It's like my guilty pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. We'll jump into it right now on Out of the Box. It's Chandelier by Sia. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And also a big thank you to producer Rebecca, who read Kaya's book and did a lot of research for this episode. Brie Kennedy is up for lunch, so stick around for that. Thanks. Bye. Come back to